Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week our podcast features an episode of NBC University. It's an adaptation of Lord Jim. It runs for about an hour, and it first aired on October 10th, 1948. This is the NBC University Theater, bringing you the second in our series of full-hour dramatizations of outstanding works in modern American and British fiction. Today, we present Brian Ahern in the title role of the Joseph Conrad novel, Lord Jim. Powerfully built chap with a dogged self-drive to him. Aye, the same one, certainly. I've run into him in several of these eastern ports. Bombay, Calcutta, Rangoon, always worked as a water clock. Well, deucedly clever at it, too. But I hear he's full of black ingratitude. A uh, ship chandler never knew when he'd throw up his job and leave suddenly without so much as a thank you. Mysterious of a sort. Confounded fool, I'd say. Uh, could have made a pretty penny if he'd stayed in one place. Jim's name was, I think. Hey, that's it, Jim. Uh, what was the last name? Oh, come to think of it, I don't remember his ever having one. I say that is a bit mysterious now. Jim had another name, of course but he was anxious that it should not be pronounced. His incognito was not meant to hide a personality, but a fact. And when the fact broke through, he would suddenly leave the seaport where he happened to be and move on to another, generally farther east. When his flight finally cut him off from white men, the melees of the jungle added a word to the monosyllable of his incognito. They called him Tuan Jim. As one might say, Lord Jim. But that part comes near the end of my story. Let me begin at the beginning. Originally, he came from a parsonage. And between energetic son and pious, peaceful father, there was an enviable love and understanding. Well, son, I thought we might talk about your future this afternoon. You'll soon be finished at the school here. Uh, Yes, sir. A little milk in your tea? Oh, thank you. As you know, the parsonage here has been handed down from father to son for generations. You would make a good minister, I believe. Uh, Sir. Uh, But my father let me make my own decision, and you shall make yours. I, I want to go to sea, father. To sea. I'm not totally surprised. I've noticed your taste in literature. But are you positive, son? The life will not be always as depicted in romantic sea tales. Oh, oh, I'm sure. I'm very sure. It's the only life I want. Well, if you can match your enthusiasm with tenacity, I've no doubt you'll make it a good life. I'll uh, make arrangements for you to be sent to a training ship for officers of the mercantile marine. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you. You'll be proud of me, sir. I'll do big things. Just do the little things well and I'll be satisfied. After all, you're my son. I... I I think I'll warm my tea. He got on well and was generally liked. He had a steady head and an excellent physique. After two years of training, he went to sea. Yet in the routine of his days, he never lost his avidity for adventure and his sense of possessing many-sided courage. 
A leg accident caused him to put up at a hospital at an eastern port. His recovery was slow, and he was left behind. Well, again, he took a berth as chief mate of the Patna, a local steamer as old as the hills and eaten up with rust, worse than a condemned water tank. She was commanded by a renegade German, who wore a blood and iron air combined with a purple nose and a red moustache. Well, here come the cattle again. The cattle? Oh, you mean our passengers? You call them Arab pilgrims' passengers? Cattle! Covered with dust and sweat and grime. They sleep all over the deck on mats. This is your first trip, huh? After you keep stepping over them a few times, you'll swap them for pigs. Pigs is cleaner, maybe. Well, when they're all on, we'll shove off. That was the first and last voyage Jim made on the Patna. I met him at the police court of an eastern port where the inquiry was being held. Yes, you see, another ship had picked up the captain, mate, and two engineers of the Patna in their lifeboat. But when they reached port, the captain deserted, and the two engineers were too ill to testify. So Jim was the whole show. The judges could get nothing from him, though. I know as much of what happened as any man alive will ever know, I suspect. It was after I had pressed Jim with the dinner imitation and then served him some warming wine that he opened up to me. It's all in being ready. I wasn't. Not that night. Oh, I don't want to excuse myself. But I would like to explain. I would like somebody to understand. Somebody. One person at least. You. Why not you? You've been no in kind. I'd be happy to listen. It bulged, I tell you. We, we'd hit something big and it, it bulged, I tell you. I was holding my lamp along the angle iron in the lower deck when a flake of rust as big as the palm of my hand fell off the plate all of itself. That made you feel pretty bad, eh? Do you suppose I was thinking of myself? With a hundred and sixty people at my back, all fast asleep on the fourteen deck, uh, and more aft, sleeping and knowing nothing about it. Three times as many as there were boats for, even if there'd been time. And you felt there was no time. I expected to see the iron open out as I stood there and the ocean rush in. In a split second, I lived what could happen. A, a sea whitened by the struggles of human beings, clamorous with the distress of cries for help. And, and there was no help. Oh, it seemed to take all the life out of my limbs. Do you think I was afraid of death? No, by heaven, no. But a voice, my own voice, kept speaking aloud inside my head. Eight hundred people and seven boats. Eight hundred people and seven boats. And no time. Oh, I, I don't know how long I stood there. Perhaps a minute. It, it was timeless. Well, when I finally got to the bridge, these beggars, the, the captain and the, the two engineers, were getting one of the boats off the chocks. Ah, oh, it's you. Lend a hand, quick. Quick, man. Aren't you going to do something? Yeah, yeah, clear out. What? Clear out, you fool. This crate won't last another minute. But, but these these people... I suppose you can save them, you crazy fool. Send a hand here. No, no. You mustn't leave them. You'd rather die with them? Die, then. Hand me that hammer. Uh, we've got to work fast here. I'm sure. Oh, the sliding boat of the boat chop is jammed tight. Well, take the hammer to it here. Oh. I stood on the starboard side away from them. I wanted no part in their work. I, I, I can't remember thinking of anything, only waiting for the ship to suddenly dip into the sea. Come and help for all that's holy. Come and help. I can't. Oh, if I had the time, I'd crack your skull for you. Won't you save your own life, you infernal coward? Let you... it sink. Let it sink. Curse you. Come and help, man. Are you mad to throw away your only chance? Come and help, man. Look, the squall's coming. We're done for in a few moments if we don't loose this thing. It was black. Black. It had sneaked upon us from behind. I suppose there had been some hope at the back of my head yet. I, I don't know. But it was all over now. I was angry as though I'd been trapped. I, I was trapped. Hammer! Hammer mine! Got the hammer! You silly fool! Do you think you get the ghost of a show when all that lot of brutes is in the water? Why, they'll batter your head for you from these boats. Squall engulfed us now. The rain was blinding when one couldn't tell where it ended and the, and the ocean began. 
And just then, the jammed locks of the lifeboat gave way. That does it. Uh, easy now. Lower her slow. Uh, careful there. Swing it out now. She's going. Let her go. Uh, easy. Uh, the next minute was crowded with a tumult of events and sensations that beat about me like the sea upon a rock. A squall had awakened many of the pilgrims. They didn't know what was happening, but they began to chatter wildly in their native tongue. The captain and the engineers had gotten down in the lifeboat. I stood with my hand on the davit. And then they began to scream from the boat. Jump! We'll catch you! The squall! We've got to shove off! Jump! Jump! We'll catch you! Jump! thing I remember, I was in the boat. I had jumped, it seems. So it would seem. I knew nothing about it till I looked up. And then I wished I could die. There was no going back. It, it was as if I'd jumped into a well, into an everlasting deep hole. Oh, yes. I know it very well. Certainly I jumped. I told you I jumped. But they were too much for any man. It, it was their doing as plainly as if they'd reached up with a boat hook and pulled me over. Can't you see it? You, you, you must see it. Come, speak straight out. You've been tried. I don't know what I would have done. Nor does any man. And uh, when the Avondale picked you up, you told them... What I believed. As the first boat was lowered, the ship went into a squall. Sank like lead. Oh, the story didn't matter. I jumped. That's what I have to live down. It was like cheating the dead. And there were no dead? No. The Patna was found the next day. Adrift. Was towed to Aden. If I'd only stayed on. Oh, what a chance missed. What a chance missed. <laughs> Not many men are offered a try at real heroism. Fewer still have dreamed and waited for it, as had Jim. Perhaps the world could have forgiven him as human failure, but he could never forgive himself. The outcome of the inquiry was as all had expected. Jim's certificate was cancelled. I did not seek him out after the trial, but I was extremely pleased when he casually walked into my room the next afternoon... May I have a cigarette? Help yourself. Hmm. Here's a light. Oh, thanks. Well, that's over. Yes. I wonder what's to come. Why not visit home? Never. You're awfully fond of your dad. I can tell. <laughs> that's no secret. And he'd be... I'd be in all the papers by now. No, oh, I'll never go back again. But look I'd here... I'd rather not discuss it. Sorry. No, better than a vagabond now. Without a single... Well, someday one's bound to come up and some sort of chance to get it all back again. Must. Perhaps. Life's long enough. Don't reckon too much on it. I feel as if nothing could ever touch me again. You still won't take the money that's due you from the Patna? <laughs> I suppose you intend to eat and drink and sleep under shelter in the usual way. What will you do tomorrow? Where will you turn? That isn't the thing. You've got to live. On every conceivable ground, you must let me help you. You can't. But I can. No, I won't take money. Upon my word, you deserve being told to go to blazes. It isn't a question of money at all. Look at this letter. I'm writing to a man of whom I've never asked a favor. I make myself unreservedly responsible for you. He'll give you a job with his firm. A rice mill. Oh, you're a brick. Why, this is what I... You, uh... <laughs> well, you, you don't mind my not saying anything appropriate. There isn't anything one can oh, say. Oh, now, All right, all right, it. I'll shut up. But you, you can't stop me from thinking, though. Never mind. I'll show you yet. I always thought that if a fellow could start with a clean slate, and now you, in a measure... Yes, a clean slate. I, I'll show you. Six months afterwards, my friend wrote me of Jim, 
He was highly pleased with his work, as well as his personality. Jim had a chance for big advancements. Then, after a few more months, I chanced to stop at the city where my friend lived. I was looking forward to seeing Jim, too, but... Not with you any longer. But I, I thought you liked him. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Exactly. You tell me. I was deucedly fond of him. Even had him stay here in my home. And last month I came down to breakfast one morning and found a note from him. He'd gone. Sorry. That was all. Allow me to say, lest you should have some more mysterious young men in reserve, that I have shut up shop. But he must have given a reason. Think hard. No. No. Well, there was, but that couldn't have been the reason for... What? What did you just think? Oh, a trifle. I had a man to look after some machinery at the mill. Jim didn't seem to like him much, but he was such an insignificant fellow, really. Why didn't he like him? Well, dash it all, I don't know. I remember, though, he got rather upset when the fellow mentioned they'd been on a ship somewhere together. By the way, you didn't tell me... Was the to... ship the Patna? Could have been. Yes, now think it was. Yes, the Patna. One chance in a hundred. But it's always that hundredth chance. And Jim had been forced to move on. Had forced himself. And thrown over a fortune. The next I heard from him, he was a water clerk for Ekstrom and Blake, ship chandlers in a still more eastern port. When my ship put in there, I went to the offices. Ekstrom told me the story this time. Oh, him? Oh, he left us, Captain. When did he leave? Well, let's see. The very day a steamer with returning pilgrims from the Red Sea put in here with two blades of a propeller gone. Uh, three weeks ago now. Wasn't there something said about the Patna case? Uh, why, yes. Come to think of it, Captain, how did you know? Uh, the two ships were compared. Then they, they started on about the Patna like most people do. The interesting case, you know... Uh, Jim was here at the time having a sandwich and a glass of beer, and suddenly, sir, that blasted Jim, he, he puts down the sandwich he had in his hand and walks around the table and says to me, just like this, he... I'm shoving off. Oh, no need to hurry out for the next job, Jimmy. It isn't half past one yet. You might snatch a smoke first. Uh, I'm off for good, leaving you. Huh? What? That's it. Oh, <laughs> oh, a rise in the wage. Oh, that's the trouble, is it? Oh, well, all right. There's no need of all that fuss with me, Jimmy. Just mention your figure, anything in reason. Uh, you're good at your job and worth the price. No, I can't stop with you. Huh? What's the blooming joke, lad? No joke. I've got to go. What is it you're running away from? Who's been getting at you? Where did you expect to find a better berth? No place. Oh, look here, this business ain't going to sink. I give you my word. If you knew my reasons, you you wouldn't care to keep me. That's the biggest lie you ever told in your I life. I know my own mind. Can't you really stop long enough to drink this glass of beer, you funny beggar, you? Goodbye. You're not half a bad chap, Ekstrom. Well, if you're in such a hurry, here's luck to you in your own drink. Well, you mark my words, if you keep up this game, you'll sure find that the earth ain't big enough to hold you. Goodbye. He gave me one black look. Out he rushed with a face fit to scare little children. Haven't been able to get a man that was any good since. And where might you come across him, Captain, if it's fair to ask? He was the mate of the Patna that voyage. Uh, and who the devil cares about that? I dare say no one. Save himself. I have told you these two episodes at length to show his manner of dealing with himself under the new conditions of his life. There were many others of the sort, more than I could count on the fingers of my two hands. There seemed no place else he could escape to. It was then I went to see Stein, a wealthy and respected merchant who dealt in island produce on a large scale. I told Stein Jim's story. I understand very well. He is romantic, yeah. What's to be done for it? There is only one remedy. The question is not 
how to get cured, but how to live. Mm. Yes, I know. I tell you, my friend, it is not good for you to find you cannot make your dream come true for the reason that you are not strong enough or not clever enough. Yeah? There is one way. Follow the dream. Follow the dream. Well, it's too late for that now. Then perhaps another way. He could be buried. Buried? Away from those who remind him of his lost dream. But he's traveled 3,000 miles, and it follows him. He has never been to Patusan. Patusan? A remote district of a native-ruled state. Oh. No one ever goes there. No one would ever wish to. I have a small trading post there. You think Jim could manage it? He could do no worse than the man I have there now. White or native? A Moluccan Portuguese named Cornelius. Worthless, conniving fellow. His wife was a fine woman, though. She had a daughter by her first marriage who stays on with Cornelius. If Jim takes the post, will you bring this Cornelius back? I doubt he would leave. It does not matter to me. But we should warn your Jim. Cornelius may well make trouble for him. The afternoon I stood on the dock saying goodbye to Jim. He was as excited and voluble as a youngster on the eve of a long holiday. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for. I've been dreaming of it. By <laughs> Jove, I'll show you yet. I, I, I'm ready for any confounded thing. This is luck at last. You wait. I hope you'll go in the proper frame of mind, Jim. I'm in a perfect frame of mind. You uh, may not want to remain. Remain? Of course I shall. Only get me in and I'll never leave. Don't be foolhardy. If you only live long enough, you'll want to come back. Come back to what? All right. Forget I mentioned it. But at least be prepared for what you'll meet when you get there. Stein warned you of the warring and pillaging that goes on between the native factions of Patusan, didn't he? Yeah, sure. That decadent Rajan, the bandit Sheriff Ali, all of that. <laughs> all of that can become a bit annoying when you're there without help. Oh, but I'll have help, you know. That old chap called Doramine, one of the principal men out there, is a great friend of Mr. Stein's, and he'll be my friend, too. Oh, I say, don't look at me that way. I promise to take care of myself. Yes, yes, yes. That's better. I won't take any risks. Of course I won't. I mean to hang out, so don't you worry. By Joe, I feel as if nothing could touch me. Why, this is luck from the word go. I wouldn't spoil such a magnificent chance. It's a magnificent chance. Jim's coming to Patusan was a blessing. But to them, as to many of us, the blessing came heralded by terrors. Doramin and his son Dane Waris befriended Jim, it is true, but the tribe they headed was only a small part of the population. And the rest of the natives under the Raja's rule feared the white god new to their midst. Jim took up quarters with Cornelius. This was a mistake, since Cornelius was part of the plot to get rid of him. You really must leave. Surely you know your life is in danger at every minute. Cornelius, you have been whispering in my ears the plans that have been made for my murder for weeks now, and so far nothing's even threatened me. So far, the so man far. can become even contemptuous of his own suicide when it becomes such a familiar threat. They will do it, I tell you. Now let them try. Once. It will be too late, then. On their first attempt, they will succeed. I know these people. I'm getting to know them, too, however. I think they fear me, Cornelius. Uh, just that. Just that. You have no time to lose. For your safety, only with the thought of your safety, I have gone to great pains to devise a plan. A plan? For your escape. A great deal of trouble on my part, and and for only a hundred dollars, even eighty? Yes. Let's say, Eddie, I can procure a trustworthy man who will smuggle you out of the land. No one, no one will ever know what happened to you. Probably even I won't know. Oh, you must trust me. I am your only friend. You must trust me for only $80. A small sum for your life. <laughs> oh, you must not laugh. You must trust me. Think of the danger I am risking by staying behind. They will surely know it was I who helped you escape. 
But I don't think of myself, no. Only of you. You must leave if you care a pin for your life. That's just it, Cornelius. If it means running away, I don't care a pin. No? You refuse? You insist on staying? I am staying. Then your blood be on your own head. I shan't try to befriend you any longer. It's quite all right with me. I'm going to live in Petusan. You, you shall die here. But Cornelius's warnings were not all idle. And events would have taken a bad turn for Jim if he had not had a protectress. The daughter of Cornelius's wife, whom Jim called Jewel. Get up. Get up. Get up. Huh? Hey? Huh? What? You must wake up. Uh, why? Why? What, what's happened? You all right? Yes. But you are in great danger. They have come to kill you. Oh, I've heard this too often. Mm, I... No, no. It's true. Here's your gun. Take it. I have loaded it. Oh, but... There is no time to lose. Can you face four men with your gun? Yes. Then come with me. I'll hold the torch high so you can see your way along the path. Come. But uh, you, you must tell me what this is all about. Four men are hiding in that hut over there, to the right. They intend murdering you while you slept. I heard Cornelius talking with them. Oh, they've plotted many times, Jewel. Uh, but I know when they mean to carry it through. You think I have watched on this night only? You? Please do not stop. Walk quickly. There's someone coming. I can. It's Cornelius. Hey, Cornelius! Oh, they know you are awake now. Your voice. You must run away. They know you are strong and fearless. Run to Doramin. Go to Doramin. If I am strong and fearless, oh, why? Yes. So they won't attack you tonight. But what about tomorrow night? And the next? Of the many, many nights? Can I always be watching? If I am fearless, then let me be. They're in that shed? Yes, I'm going in. No, then I'll come with you. No, you stay here. No. I will hold the torch in through the window. You could see nothing without it. And we'll run now. Now, push open the door. Fire! <coughs> Defend yourself! Why, there's no one here. No, look. That heap of dirty mats. Eyes are watching us. Come out. Come out, I say. He has a knife. Why don't you shoot? Jim held his shot deliberately. Held it for the tenth part of a second. For three strides of the man. Held it for the pleasure of saying to himself, That's a dead man. He noticed the dilated nostrils, the wide eyes, the intent, eager stillness of the face. And then he fired. <coughs> he saw the man jerk his head up, fling his arms forward, and drop the knife. He had shot him through the mouth. With the impetus of his rush, the man drove straight on and landed with terrific violence on his forehead, just short of Jim's bare toes. The place was getting very full of sooty smoke from the torch. Jim walked over the body and covered with his revolver another naked figure, outlined vaguely at the other end. As he was about to pull the trigger, the man threw away a short, heavy spear and squatted submissively. You want your life? How many more of you are there? Two more, Accordingly, two more crawled from under the mats, holding out their empty hands to Lord Jim. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is bringing you Brian Ahern in Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad, another in our special series of dramatizations of great English and American novels. Our intermission commentator today is Dr. Harvey C. Webster of the University of Louisville, where these productions are currently being used in conjunction with his course in Anglo-American fiction as part of a national college by radio plan which permits our listeners to earn credit toward a college degree by means of radio. Now, here to comment on today's novel, Lord Jim, 
is the distinguished author and lecturer, Dr. Harvey C. Webster, speaking to you from Louisville. And say they're usually pessimistic thoughts, many read Conrad as philosopher and accept or reject him as they accept or reject what they think Conrad thinks. This is unfortunate. An artist, especially a great one like Conrad, is more than his philosophy, more than his experience, above, in spite of himself, his prejudices. Typhoon, one of Conrad's best tales, is not only about its title, it is also about man's courage, nature's apparent hostility, and much else. Victory, the only Conrad novel I like better than Lord Jim, is not a pessimistic sermon or a melodrama or an exhibition of the beautiful English a man born in Poland can write. Victory is a seeing of life that sometimes includes pessimism and melodrama that is written in beautiful prose and a great deal more. What you take away from the seeing of life in Victory, in Lord Jim, in all of Conrad's fiction depends on you, your maturity, your patience, your sensitivity. Conrad himself has put this better than I have. My task, he says, is to make you hear, to make you feel. It is before all to make you see. If I succeed, you shall find there, according to your deserts, encouragement, consolation, fear, charm, all you demand, and perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you have forgotten to ask. At his best, in youth, victory, Lord Jim, under western eyes, Nostromo, the heart of darkness, in perhaps five or six others, Conrad does make you hear, feel, and see, so that you can find in his books what you deserve to find. I hope that you deserve greatly, for there is much to find in the Conrad novels I hope you'll start reading or rereading when this program is over. Thank you, Dr. Webster. Our dramatization of Lord Jim continues from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification. visited Patterson two years after Jim's arrival. It was inconceivable how many things he had regulated over the entire island, the good he had done the people. When the natives spoke of Tuan Jim, their tone was a strange mixture of familiarity and awe. Jim had a very fine house in the native style. His life there with Jewel was as typical and devoted as the happiest couple in a London suburb. And as for Jim himself, I think he was almost satisfied. Almost satisfied. What man can hope for much more? Peaceful here, eh? Look at those houses down in the valley below. There's not one where I'm not trusted. <laughs> I told you I'd hang on. Ask any man, woman, or child. I don't have to. I see it in their faces. Well, I'm all right, anyhow. I never had any doubt of it, Jim. I'm glad you found out in the end. By Joe. Only think what it is to me. I've got back my confidence in myself. A good name. You know, sometimes I wish... That you could go back and prove it to the others? No. No, I shall hold on to what I've got. I can't expect anything more. Not out there in the world, anyhow. No, this is my limit, because... because nothing less will do. Then you have no desire to leave for any uh, personal happiness? Leave? It'd be harder than dying. No, on my word, don't laugh. Every day, every time I open my eyes, I feel that I'm trusted. And then there's Jewel. I, uh, I love her dearly. More than I could tell. And she adores you. Yes. You take a different view of your actions when you come to understand, when you're made to understand every day that your existence is necessary. 
absolutely necessary to another person. I'm made of your lad, and it's, it's wonderful. I've been only two years here, and now, upon my word, I, I can't conceive of living anywhere else. Jim, you said you're all right now. Does that mean, too, you've forgotten why you came here? Not yet. And yet, upon my soul, I think I've a right to. And perhaps someday... <laughs> Isn't it strange that all these people who would do anything for me could never be made to understand? If you ask them who is brave, who is true, who is just, who is it that they would trust with their lives, they would say Tuan Jim. And yet, they can never know the real, real truth. There was one person in Patusan who felt the shadow of the truth, however, without knowing. And for her, it became a haunting fear. I sensed that Jewel had been waiting for an opportunity to speak with me alone. It came one evening when Jim, followed by his faithful servant, Tammy Tam, had started on his rounds. Come to take him away? No. Upon my word, I did not come for that. Why did you come, then? I, I had business here with Jim. And more than that, we're great friends, you know. Believe me, my dear, if I have any wish in the matter, it is for him to stay, not leave. They always leave us. You're wrong. Nothing can separate him from you. That is what he said. He swore it to me. Did you ask him? Oh, no, never. In the beginning, I, I asked him to leave. I begged him to. But he said he could not, that it was impossible. I begged him to leave. I was thinking of his safety, but I was trying to save myself, too. Save yourself? I did not want to die weeping, as my mother did. I wanted him to leave before it was too late for me. But do you say he swore to you he would stay? Oh, yes. And is it possible that you... You do not believe him. Other men have sworn the same thing. My father did. But he's not like that. Why is he different? Is he better? Is he? On my word of honor, I believe he is. Tell me, is he more true? More true than any other man. Fear shall never drive him away from you. What is it, then? What is it? There is something he can never forget. I know Yet I don't know. He says he has been afraid. How can I believe this? You all remember something. You all go back to it. You tell me. What is this thing? Has it got a face and a voice? Will he see it? Will he hear it in his sleep, perhaps, when he cannot see me? And then will he arise and, and go? I shall never forgive him. My mother forgave, but I never. I can understand your fear, but it is unfounded. There's nothing, nothing in that outside unknown world, nothing living or dead, no voice, no power that can tear Jim from your side. No one wants him. No one? No one. Why? Why? Tell me why. You really... Want to know? Oh, yes, yes. Because he's not good enough. But that is the very thing he said. You lie, both of you. I called after her. I tried to explain that no one was good enough, really. But she ran from me. And seeing Jim coming, I slipped away. As I walked down the path, Cornelius ran up to me. He had an eager, craving look on his sour, yellow little face. Even his groveling aspect could not hide the hate that was eating him up. Look at me, honorable sir, look at me. The most unhappy of men, a victim, crushed, crushed. And I tried to befriend him and see what I got. You befriend Jim? What are you talking about? 
Don't, don't walk away. Forgive me, honorable sir. Spare me a moment more. My great misfortunes have affected my head, honorable sir. I say things I don't mean. Please, the honorable sir doesn't know what it means to be broken down, ruined, trampled upon. But if you could put yourself in my position, perhaps you... What are you getting at, Cornelius? You could perhaps, honorable sir, speak to him in my behalf, eh? Only a moderate provision, I ask. A small present. Present? For what? In exchange for the girl. I brought her up, honorable sir, another man's child. It was... it was great trouble and pain. And now I... I'm an old man... If the Honorable Sir would say a word, and you could tell him for a suitable present, I'd I'd be willing to take the girl back again. Take her back? Yes, Honorable Sir, when the time comes for the gentleman to go home. In this case, Cornelius, the time shall never come. What? Haven't you heard him say so himself? He will never go home. This is too much. He, he comes here, devil knows from where, comes here to trample on me till I die. Till I die. I... But patience. Patience. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. He cannot steal everything from me and get away with it. <laughs> we, we shall see. <laughs> It all began about a year later with a man named Brown. Gentleman Brown, he was ironically called, who with a small but cold-blooded band pillaged the helpless native villages of the eastern seas. But he was down on his luck now, and it was for food mostly that Gentleman Brown picked on Patusan. Patusan. Probably a largest native village, sure to be defenseless, boys. And with lots of provisions to lay our hands on. <laughs> Bullocks, rice, sweet potatoes. Maybe even enough to stock a cargo and make a little change to boot. We'll roast their toes rather than be balked. But Gentleman Brown had not counted on the influence of Tuan Jim on the well-stocked ammunition stores. Though Jim was away on a trip to the interior, the natives on the Dane Waris, within a few hours, had forced the invaders to seek protection behind a blockade on a small knoll. The situation seemed hopeless for Gentleman Brown, until Cornelius arrived and opened his eyes to the home affairs of Patusan. Yes, there are possibilities, I tell you, immense possibilities. Perhaps we could work together and beat him. But who is this white lord you've been raving about? What's his name? Jim. Jim. That's not enough for a man's name. What is he? Where does he come from? Is he an Englishman? Yes. Yes, but he's a fool. All you have to do is kill him, and then you are king. Hmm. Perhaps I could persuade him we should work together. That we could share things, and once I got to the powder supply... I'd be in charge. An argument would start between us. It only takes one shot, you know. Yes, yes. And then we... I mean, you would be master. What, uh... What's that? He has come. Already? Are you sure? They are sounding the drums for him. Oh, why such a row? For joy. He's a very great man, but all the same, he knows no better than a child. And now look here, how is one to get to him? He, he will come to talk to you. What do you mean? Come down here strolling, as it were? Yes. He's just that much of a fool. You shall see what a fool he is. <laughs> you shall see. He is not afraid of anything. He will order you to leave his people alone. <laughs> He's just like a little child. He will order you to leave his people alone, and then... Then, Captain, you tell that tall man with a gun who's such a good shot to shoot him. <laughs> just, just you kill him and you shall frighten everybody so much. You can do anything you like with them afterwards. <laughs> fine. Yes, fine. <laughs>
Captain Brown. What's yours? Jim did not answer this question, but stood looking at the men on the other side of the small creek. What made you come here? You want to know? Uh, it's easy to tell. Hunger. And what made you? Not for hunger. And not for plunder. We were driven to it. We came here for food, you hear? Food to fill our stomachs. We don't ask for anything but to give us a fight or a clear road to go back whence we came. I would fight with you now. And I would let you shoot me and welcome. This is as good a jumping off place for me as any. But by heaven, I'm not the sort to jump out of trouble and leave my men in the lurch. What did you do out there on the outside to be driven to this? <laughs> Have we met to tell each other the story of our lives? I won't ask you what scared you into this infernal hole where you seem to have found pretty pickings. That's your luck and this is mine. The privilege to beg to be shot quickly or else to go free and starve in my own way. Will you promise to leave the coast and to surrender your arms? Surrender our arms? Not till you come and take them out of our stiff hands. Ha! You think I've gone crazy? Very well. You shall have a clear road or else a clear fight. Henceforth, events moved fast. Jim returned to the council meeting of the natives over which Doramin presided, but he spoke with unaccustomed difficulty. Everybody shall be safe. You have my word for it. I, who put the happiness and the safety of you, my people, above all else. But are they not bloodthirsty robbers bent on killing, Tuan? They are erring men whom suffering has made blind to right and wrong. Oh, it's true that lives have been lost already, but why lose more? Their evil deeds should be punished. No, no, wait, wait, hear me, please. Let Tuan continue. It's true they've killed some of our people. We've killed some of theirs. But a fight will only heap new evils upon the old. Have I ever ill-advised you? Have my words ever brought suffering to you? You have always been our friend. I am one of you. Your welfare is my welfare. Your losses, my losses. And your mornings, my mornings. And so I say, I think it would be best to let these whites and their followers go and live their lives. It would be a small gift. I, whom you have tried and always found true, ask you to let them go. What is your command, O'Daramin? I have no trust for the white men on the hill. It seems to me they should be punished. But I do trust you, Tuan Jim. If you say it is best they go, let it be so. A message was sent to Gentleman Brown, and Tammy Tam, Jim's servant, was dispatched with a message to Dane Warris, who waited with an encampment farther down the river that the white men should be allowed to pass unmolested. But a new member was aboard the invader's boat as it made its way along the foggy river this time. A man with a thirst for revenge in his eyes. The man was Cornelius. should have killed that one when you had a chance. That would have done no good. Well, at least we're getting out alive. And he sent a bit of food to boot. A bit of food, bah. When you could have had gold and precious stuff. The place is full of it. Huh? Yes, he stole it. Why could you not have taken it from him? You have as much right. Gold? He tricked me. Oh, now, now you see it. What a fool you were. Ah, it's too late now. Uh, for the gold, perhaps. Not for revenge. Huh? Dane Voris is encamped farther down the river with a band of warriors. So? And I'll tell you something else, Captain. I know another way along this river. One that will take us behind, not in front of Dane Voris' camp. Oh? If you were quiet, 
They would never hear us approach. They'd be looking for us the other way. <laughs> and this fog makes an extra covering. Can can you find your way in this soup? I have lived here a long time. I'll follow your directions. It was an act of cold-blooded ferocity. Gentleman Brown's revenge upon the world which, after 20 years of contemptuous and reckless bullying, refused him the tribute of a common robber's success. When Tammy Tam, Padlig Madly, got back to the town, the women were looking out for the return of Dane Waris's fleet of little boats. The town had a festive air. Tammy Tam, panting, with trembling lips and wild eyes, rushed to the house of Lord Jim. It's I, Tammy Tam, Twad, with tidings that cannot wait. Yes, come in. What's wrong? This, Twad, is a day, a day of evil, and a cursed day. Speak out. It was most cruel treachery. They came up behind the camp. They have shot Dane Waris and many more. Oh, no. Is Dane Waris dead? He ran out at the first shots and fell. They will be bringing his body back soon to his father, Doramin. Order a fleet of boats out for immediate pursuit. We'll repay them for this. Why just stand there? Waste no time. Forgive me, Twan. What? It is not safe any longer for thy servant to go out amongst the people. Jim understood at once. He had retreated from one world for a small matter of an impulsive jump. And now the other world, the work of his own hands, had fallen in ruins upon his head. He sat alone in his room all day. He would not even speak with Jewel. Later, toward evening... He called Tammy Tam. Well? There is much weeping, much anger, too. What does the council say? You know? Luckily, we have the powder here. We'll have to fight. Fight? What for? For our lives. I have no life. Oh, no. Do not speak so. Tam, I give you and my other servants leave to depart to your homes. For how long, Twan? For all time. It is time to finish this. Will you not fight? There's nothing to fight for. Nothing is lost. Then will you fly? Shall we fly? There is no escape. And you shall go? Oh, you are mad or false. Do you remember the night I prayed you to leave me? You said that you could not, that it was impossible. Impossible. Do you remember you said you would never leave me? Why? I asked you for no quiet, promise. Quiet, Jewel, I should not be worth having. Oh, yes. You are mine. Will you defend yourself? Nothing can touch me. Oh, but I shall hold you with my arms so. You are mine. I will not let you go. Oh, let me go, let me go, Jewel. I, I must. Oh, no. Come back. Come back. Oh, you are false. False. Forgive me. Never. Never. Jim got into his boat without looking back once on the girl crumpled upon the ground. He paddled to Doramin's campong. Tammy Tam had come this far with Jim, but the Twan forbade him to go any farther. Torches twinkled here and there. Wailing filled the night air. The body of Dane Waris lay on a low couch in front of his father. Doramin, alone and desolate, sat in his armchair with a pair of flintlock pistols on his knees, faced by the throng of mourners. Many were whispering, He has worked all the evil. He brought us disaster. Jim heard their words. When he came into the light of the torches, the wailing ceased suddenly. Doramin did not lift his head. Jim stood silent before him for a time. The people began to murmur in a surprised tone. He came. 
He came. He hath taken it upon his own head. Yes, upon my own head. I am come in sorrow. I am come ready and unarmed. I have come to say goodbye to my friend, Dane Warris, and to stand before the great Doramine. Yes, I take it upon my own head. Doramine stood, tottering a bit. His eyes stared with an expression of mad pain and rage. And then, while Jim stood stiffened and with bared head in the light of torches, he lifted his right arm deliberately and shot his son's friend through the chest. They say that the white man sent right and left at all those faces a proud and unflinching glance. Then, with his hand over his lips, he fell forward, dead. And that's the end. He passes away under a cloud, instant, forgotten, unforgiven, and excessively romantic. Not in could he have seen the alluring shape of such an extraordinary success. For it may very well be that in the short moment of his last proud and unflinching glance, he had beheld the face of that opportunity which, like an eastern bride, had come veiled to his side. Curtain falls on the second in our new series of full-hour dramatizations of outstanding works in modern British and American fiction. Today, the NBC University Theater has brought you an adaptation by Agnes Eckert of the Joseph Conrad novel, Lord Jim, starring Brian Ahern, internationally celebrated star of stage and screen. Our cast included Donald Morrison, narrator, Norman Field, Rolf Sedan, Jerome Sheldon, Paul McVeigh, Jack Crucian, Sidney Miller, Maya Gregory, Joseph Granby, Victor Perrin. Intermission commentator today was Dr. Harvey C. Webster of the University of Louisville, where productions of the NBC University Theater are currently being used in conjunction with his course in Anglo-American fiction under a special college-by-radio plan. Next week at this time, the NBC University Theater will present another great work, this time by an American author, Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Your director was Andrew C. Love. Original music for Lord Jim was composed by Albert Harris and conducted by Henry Russell. NBC University Theater came to you from Hollywood. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. This show ran for three seasons, from 1948 to 1950. It featured the best adaptations of classic novels that radio had to offer. The show was an interesting use of radio for education. It was incorporated into several college home study courses, starting with the University of Louisville and Washington State College, with more added later. I can't help but to think of parallels to current online education courses. During breaks in the episode, a popular author or literary critic, and remember that back then it was possible to have a popular literary critic, would remark on the book, the author, or the performance, helping to add to the educational value of the program. 
The show is broadcast according to the university's semester schedule. The program featured extremely high-quality dramatizations of classic novels, including Don Quixote, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Great Expectations of Human Bondage, Alice in Wonderland, and many, many more. The shows were so well acted and produced that it won a Peabody Award, just as prestigious then as it is now, in 1949 for their adaptation of Hemingway's The Short Happy Life of Francis Maycomer. Actors included John Lund, George Montgomery, Angela Lansbury, Jane Darwell, and Preston Foster. But just like today, studio executives feared that the word university in the title of the program was scaring potential listeners off. So in 1950, the name was changed to just NBC Theater. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.